Several years ago, Carolyn and I attended a famous musical held at the Walton Arts Center. Yes, I am a sophisticated patron of the arts. And quite honestly, I, I could hardly wait to see this particular production. Why? Because the, 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 the main character in the play was also the star of the highly popular film version. The play, Fiddler on the Roof. The star, Tapal, the, the famous Israeli actor, and in fact, he even got a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor in Fiddler on the Roof. Now, in Fiddler on the Roof, if you've never seen the, the, uh, the show, and shame on you if you haven't, but in Fiddler on the Roof, he plays Tevi, a somewhat pious dairyman with five daughters and a strong wife. In other words, he's outnumbered and outgunned. In my favorite scene, Tevi is in the barn tending his livestock, and then he begins to speak to God. Oh, dear Lord, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor, but it's not great honor either. So what would have been so terrible if I had a small fortune? And then he began to sing. If I were a rich man, yubba dibby 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 dum. And that's the first and only solo I have ever sung at Fellowship Bible Church. Yeah. Don't humor me. And then the lyrics went on. You want me to sing some more? <laughs> Get a life, folks. It's... Later, the lyrics go like this. Listen to this. I'd build a tall house with rooms by the dozen, right in the middle of the town. A fine tin roof with real wooden floors below. There would be one long staircase just going up and one even longer coming down. And one more leading nowhere just for show. If I were a rich man. The truth is, Tevi's not alone. Uh, lots of people crave to have what they do not have. They crave more and more, not less and less. But where does this sometimes sinful lust for riches lead us in the end? Proverbs eleven twenty eight notes, and here's the key word, trust. Trust in your money and down you go. But the godly flourish like leaves in spring. Trust in your money, you're a hoarder person but the godly flourish you're a healthy person Edmund Burke was an Anglo-Irish statesman and philosopher in the late 18th century that'd be the late 1700s and you might recall Burke's most famous saying the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing but he also had keen insight into the powerful allure of gaining much wealth and riches I want you to note his quote that we'll have on the screen. If we command our wealth, we will be rich and free. If our wealth commands us, we are poor indeed. And that's a memorable insight, but here's an even better insight from Jesus. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Listen closely. Here's the, the punchline from the master. You cannot serve 
And that biblical word has a rich variety of meaning. It often carries the idea of serving in the sense of of worshiping. You cannot worship and serve both God and money. In other words, you can worship money, riches, and, and in doing so, you can bow the knee to amassing great wealth, or on the other hand, you can worship wholeheartedly God, enthrone him as the driving pursuit of life. And then be a good steward of whatever God allows you to have. The choice, as always, is yours and mine. What do you passionately pursue that defines who you are? Well, we're headed into a really fun topic. And so uh, I certainly need prayer and, and the practice. So let's, uh, let's do it, shall we? Let's pray. Get our hearts ready. And pray the dangerous prayer that the Holy Spirit might speak a personal word to each and every individual here. So let's do that. Father, may it be true that we are a people of the book, not just to know about it, but to live it. By your Holy Spirit now in this teaching time, convict us where we are off center. Lord, encourage us where we are moving down the right path. But as always, Lord, open our hearts and minds to understand the richness of your word. For that's the best prayer we could pray in the name of Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, all aboard. Our journey through James continues. We've been at this uh, for several months now. And have you noticed thus far that the letter of James is extremely practical? Uh, It's just full of wisdom, overflowing with imperatives to action. About every other verse, there is a strong imperative or command in the passage. But it is also a notoriously difficult book to outline and see the flow of the argument. Uh, I have tried for years and years and years and years and years to try to get my arms around James. And for me, it just became a string of pearls. Just a nugget here or a pearl here, a pearl there, and just strung together. But in studying the passage a little more closely, there is a New Testament scholar by the name of Davids, is his last name, Peter Davids, and he has suggested a somewhat general look, broad stroke look at the book of James. I want you to see the structure of James from him. It's in three columns. We'll have uh, presented for us trials, wisdom, riches, poverty. Then the second column, very similar, very same thing. But in the third column, it's going to be expanded but the order is reversed just a little bit. You might recall, first column, trials. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Or wisdom, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives generously. Or in riches and poverty in that first chapter, if you're, if you're poor, consider your high standing in Christ. Or in the second column, it's repeated again. Trials and tribulations, blessed is the man who endures under trial. Or wisdom and speech, don't just... Uh, Uh, Don't just uh, uh, hear the word, but be a doer of the word. Possessions, uh, don't have your, uh, don't uh, hoard your possessions, but take care of widows and orphans and others in need. And then finally in the third column, it gets reversed back to riches and poverty. He says, be rich in faith. Then wisdom in actions, he says, uh, uh, show your wisdom by a good life that you live, a righteous life. And then he's back to trials and temptations again. Now, I think David's has done a nice job. If you go back and study the passage, he's done a nice job of seeing maybe some broad strokes. 
So if we were to ask, where are we in this broad look at the letter? We're in the last column, the last bullet point. James has returned to trials and temptations as a broad category to consider. As a matter of fact, in James 5 verse 1, he says, You rich people weep and wail because of the miseries. The word's in the plural in the biblical language. Wail because of the miseries that are coming upon you. That's our passage. We'll get there later. Chapter 5 verse 10, he talks about having patience in the face of sufferings. The sufferings that believers must face. 5.13, he asks, is any of you in trouble? Are you in deep water? Then pray and ask God for some divine assistance. Now today's passage, uh, James chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, is inseparably linked to last week's passage as well. Uh, James 4.13 to 17. I want you to see the similarity as to how both passages began. I taught in big church last Sunday. This is the same slide, same idea. James 4 starts, now listen. James 5 starts, now listen. James 4 says, now listen, you who say, and he goes on for five verses to talk about self-reliance. Those people who presumptively, sinfully plan their lives and build their agendas without a single thought of God. And uh, James says, "That's, that's craziness to do so to do such a thing. Today's passage, James 5.1. Now listen, you rich people. And he goes on to talk about self-indulgence. He says, those people who pursue wealth at any cost, who don't mind using and abusing people in order to get greater and greater wealth. Uh, for that, miseries and judgment will come upon these people. And so he begins each passage by saying, now listen, it's interesting to me that only in these two verse or these two passages do we see this agenun is the word in the biblical language. This is the only time we see this imperative statement in all of the New Testament. Only here. Uh, it could be translated, this command could be translated, come now, you who say, or come now, you rich people. Or it could be translated, sit up, pay attention. Or in the cup translation, look for it. In the cup translation, hey, 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 what are you thinking, you rich people who get wealthy at the expense of other people? As we look carefully at this passage and uh, we begin to see there's a a certain kind of a movement through these six verses. And I want us to get a big overview. So here's James 5, 1 to 6. Here's, I would say, is the the broad look of these six verses miseries are coming. Miseries, as we noted, they're plural, it's plural in the biblical text, suggest hardships, afflictions, wretchedness, judgment from God is coming. Miseries are coming, biblical text, and it should say verse 1. Miseries are coming. Now listen, you rich people. Miseries on your wealth, it should say verse 2. Your wealth has rotted. And miseries on your actions, it should say, verse 4, the wages you fail to pay. Who, who made up this slide? Oh, that was me. Okay. But anyway, the, the verses are wrong, but the text is correct. The truth is, James is taking the role of, I don't know, a fire-breathing prophet of the Old Testament. Someone who, uh, someone who rings forth a clarion call to God's people. He rings out condemnation upon the exploitive rich of that day. 
In fact, in these six verses of James 5, the New Testament writer sounds a whole lot like those ancient prophets sounding off against social judgment. For example, let's hear Isaiah rail against unjust judges of his day. Isaiah 10. What sorrow awaits the unjust judges and those who issue unfair laws. Now listen to this. These people, they deprive the poor of justice. They deny the rights of the needy. They prey on widows and take advantage of orphans. Notice the key verse 3. God speaking says, what will you do when I punish you? Or finally, hear uh, hear Micah in the 7th century B.C. calling to account wealthy oppressors. Here's what Micah had to say. What sorrow awaits you who will lie awake at night thinking up evil plans? Skip to verse 2. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want somebody else's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property. Verse 3. But this is what the Lord says. I will reward your evil with evil. And finally... Uh, look at Amos. Uh, hear the indignation that, that comes uh, from those who would abuse the poor. Amos, the sheep herder turned prophet. Listen to this. You who trample on the needy and try to destroy the poor of the country. Skip down uh, by almost the end of verse 5. Then people who say, then we can overcharge and we can use false measures and we can fix the scales and we can cheat our customers. Verse 7, the Lord, the God of Israel has sworn, I will never forget their evil deeds. We're not all biblical scholars. Some of us may think we are, but we're really not that well versed in Scripture But if you were reading these three prophets, do you think you would have a handle on the heart of God? Of what really ticks off the holy, righteous God of heaven. And it's when wealthy, privileged people abuse those who are poor and downtrodden. The heart of God is for the poor and the hurting and the needy, and the outcast. The point of these passages is oh so crystal clear. God does not put up with exploitation, injustice, or taking advantage of the poor, the helpless, or the needy. And at times in Scripture, the biblical spokesman will ring out clear and harsh a word of judgment upon the unrighteous exploiter. And that's precisely where we find ourselves When we come to James chapter 5. Now before we read the passage in its full six verses. Before we read the passage we need to understand this. And if you must hear this. James is not talking about all rich people. He's not condemning the wealthy for being wealthy. He is calling the oppressive exploitive rich to account. And he will not mince or weaken his words. So, let's now hear today's cheerful biblical text. James 5, and this is from the New Living because I thought it captured the 
the atmosphere or the attitude of the passage better than others. Look here, Agay Noon. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. And he's not finished. Verse 4. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have spent or have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves For the day of slaughter, you have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Thus reads the scripture from James chapter 5. Phew. Sounds like we have a nice, sweet, uplifting little biblical passage going for us today. But there is a timeless message we must see. And it's a timely day that needs to hear it. So if you have the courage, I invite you to turn in your Bible to James chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Our first solemn pronouncement. Miseries are coming. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail. Weep, in other words, sob aloud. Cry a mournful cry. Wail, howl your despair. Why? Because of the miseries, it is plural, because of the miseries that are coming upon you. In order to catch James' meaning, uh, we need to note this. First of all, I think you need to note what James is not saying. First of all, he's not saying all wealth is sinful, and he's not saying all wealthy people are unrighteous. Get that out of your mind. What he is saying is this. It does not matter that you're rich, but it does matter How you got your wealth. The law of the harvest applies even to those who are wealthy. That whatever a man sows, that he'll also reap. If he cheated to gain his wealth, the day of uh, reaping will come. The day of sowing and reaping. If you gained your wealth by oppressing others, then watch out. The day of judgment is coming. So naturally, you ought to weep and wail. These six verses in James 5 point to wealthy landowners who had cheated their laborers. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is a Messianic Jew, a Jewish believer. And he thinks that these rich men are not believers. He believes that these rich men are non-believing Jews who are exploiting the believing Jews that James is addressing in his broader letter. Excuse me. In fact, he takes us to James chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, and he says, this, is those, this uh, describes those people. But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich, context, those unbelieving, wealthy, exploitive Jewish rich people, isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? If, if, if Fruchtenbaum is right, and I think he is, 
This specific passage in James 5, uh, come now you rich, he's not talking to rich believers at all. He's talking to unbelieving Jewish rich people. People who have denied Jesus as their Messiah, but people who are still exploiting their own people and others in order to get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And James is writing this, James 5, 1 to 6, as, an, as, a, as a warning to believing Jews, as a warning to all believers, uh, all believers, that there is, there's a folly, a senselessness of ill-gotten gain, and to assure them that God sees all of this. He saw it in the day of the Old Testament prophets. He sees it in the day of James, and he will bring an account to it. Now, let's not forget that key point. The issue is not their wealth, but the flagrant misuse of what they have taken forcefully from others. Let's continue. Point two. Miseries on your wealth. Your wealth... Your wealth from your harvest, your wealth from your vast land ownings, your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes, and your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you. You hoarded wealth in the last days. So, misery, judgment is coming upon these oppressive, unjust, wealthy landowners. And know what will happen. They depended on their harvest. Well, your wealth is rotted. They depend upon the displaying the fineries of their clothing. Well, moths have eaten your clothes, your expensive embroidered robes. Uh, they depended upon their investments. Your gold and your silver are corroded. It's useless. It's worthless in the light of the day of judgment. As a matter of fact, in the biblical language, these are all in what's known as a prophetic perfect. See, I spent thousands of dollars to throw that out. Can I get a ooh? Yeah, prophetic perfect. But what a prophetic perfect means is this has not yet happened, but it is so sure that you can count on it as if it had already just happened. In other words, it's a done deal from the vantage point or the viewpoint of God. And when you think about it and hear what we've been talking about, what an image of these unjust wealthy people Notice how they're described. It, it's not a pretty thing. They're the oppressive, wealthy landowner. He is, he's so wealthy, so rich, so corrupt, so unjust, so empty, so miserable. And in the end, God says, your wealth will actually eat you alive. Jesus also had a few choice and insightful words. Look at from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 19. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and thieves break in and steal. Store your best treasures where? In heaven. Yeah, moths and rust can't destroy there and thieves don't break in and steal. And here's the punchline, verse 21. For wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Whatever you value most in your heart that's where your heart and soul is. What do you want deeply the most? James is not finished, though. Here's the last of our three verses. Miseries on your actions. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mold your fields are crying out against you. Just like those Old Testament prophets of old, God has taken notice. 
The cries of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter or judgment. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not uh, opposing you. You would do anything, hurt anyone who got in your way just so that you could get on the backs of others wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. The text is relentless. There's no ending to it. Oppressive rich landowners, you ought to weep and wail because miseries are coming. Oppressive rich, all the wealth you amassed, all the wealth you hoarded, it will eat your flesh away. And why? What did you do to the downtrodden, the abused, and the poor? You cheated your laborers, you lived in luxury, and you murdered innocent men. And this is where unnatural, sinful, lustful, greedy pursuit of wealth can take any man or any woman. No wonder James says, now listen, sit up straight, pay attention. Hey, 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 what are you thinking, you rich people? Look where your pursuit has taken you, and now that your wealth is passing away, what good is it for eternity's sake? Answer, none. So, folks, let's conclude today's cheery message with a a look at two faulty takeaways that upon hearing the passage expounded, you might come away with two faulty ideas. And we want to dismiss those immediately. But then there are going to be three spot-on takeaways that you can take with you. Let's look first at uh, the faulty ideas. And the first faulty idea is this. Being rich is sinful. No, 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 no. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, the love of money. The unnatural, obsessive lust for wealth is what can be the root that will spring forth in the fruit of uh, self-indulgent living. Being rich is uh, sinful? No, that's wrong. Number two faulty idea is pursuing wealth is sinful. No, it's not. No, working hard, being promoted, running a business, becoming successful, none of these things are wrong if... If your heart is right, your integrity is intact, your humility is real, and your actions are biblical, and your heart is open and compassionate. Well, that's the faulty ideas. Let me give you three takeaways, three spot-on ideas. Number one, do not trust in, don't put your faith, don't bank your life. Do not trust in riches, trust in in God. For heaven's sake, that's on our money. It reminds us every time we open up our our, uh, wallets. In God, we trust. Everybody else pays cash. I I know the bumper sticker. In God, we trust. Do not trust in riches. Trust in God. Paul understood this very clearly, and in 1 Timothy 6, here's advice that he gave. Command those, 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich. And some of you in this room are wealthy. As a matter of fact, compared to the rest of the world, pretty much everybody in this room is wealthy. So command those who are rich in this present world two things. Number one, don't get arrogant. Whatever you have, God has permissively and providentially allowed you to have. 
Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. That's number one. Two, not to put your hope or your trust, don't put your faith in wealth, which is so uncertain and fleeting. But in contrast to that, put your trust where it belongs. And where does it belong? In God. Trust in God. So don't trust in riches. Trust in the Lord. Second spot on idea. Do leverage your wealth for good. Leverage your wealth for good. Again, from 1 Timothy 6. Command the rich folks. Command them three things. Number one, if you're rich, do good. Secondly, be rich in good deeds. And three, be generous and willing to share from your abundance. I'm not going to name names. Uh, I'm not going to name any names. But I've seen some very wealthy people here at Fellowship live out the spirit of that passage in an absolutely marvelous sort of way. And they're so quiet about it that if I didn't have every once in a while just a little peek in the door of how they conduct their lives, I wouldn't know that because of the way they live. Command rich folks to do good, be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. Third spot on idea. Do not, ever, 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 do not exploit others to gain your wealth. And that's James's big point in James 5, 1 to 6. Remember, the wages you failed to pay, it's crying out against you. You've murdered innocent men. You've gotten wealthy on the backs of others. Well, we're done. We're going to conclude with a final parable from Jesus. You'll recall the parable. Remember, Jesus told about a man who had a good season and a great harvest. And he was so excited about that, the man decided that that good harvest wasn't enough. He's going to build bigger barns, get a bigger harvest, and make more money and be even wealthier. And Jesus, in telling the parable, says, and here's the kicker in verse 20 of that parable, but God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? The big key idea is verse 21. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth and not have, here it is, a rich, wealthy, affluent relationship with God. If you want me to have wealth, I want a rich relationship with Jesus. Because the scripture is very clear. Seek first the king. And his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will find its proper place. Don't you think? So do I. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you burn the spot on ideas deep within our hearts. May we steward well what you have richly given to us is our prayer in the name of Christ and we pray it confidently and we pray it humbly in his name.